This is Tanakh. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 16, Exodus chapters 9 through 12. So, Paro is confronted by the threat of pestilence. And, and recall our discussion from the previous episode about game theory. Paro defects again, refusing to capitulate to Moshe's demand. But this time, the account is somewhat different. We don't actually have that Charlton Heston, Yul Brenner moment of throwdown confrontation, nor do we hear about Paro's refusal. What we do have is God telling Moshe what to say, the explanation of how the next plague, pestilence, is going to go down. And Paro's defection slash refusal, it's not even recorded. It's just taken for granted. But Paro does check to see if, in fact, the pestilence only afflicts the herds of the Egyptians, and it does. So then Moshe gets the next instruction, takes some soot from the furnace, and standing before Paro, throw it into the air. And with this, boils overwhelm the Egyptians, even the magicians who by now have proved their worthlessness. Hail follows, raining destruction on Egypt, and Paro ropadopes Moshe again, promising to let the Jews go if the hail stops. So Moshe prays for the hail to stop, it does, and Paro reneges. When Moshe threatens to send locusts to devour all of Egypt for the first time, Paro's servants raise up their voices, quote, How long shall this one be a snare to us? Send the men free that they may serve Adonai their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is lost? And for the first time, there is a crack in Paro's resolve. He counteroffers. I will allow only the men to go and worship God. It is now Moshe who refuses, and Paro has them thrown out for refusing his counteroffer. Was the offer of worshiping in the desert still on the table? Well, it seems so, but when the locusts utterly ravage the countryside, Paro has Moshe and Aharon brought back, and yada yada yada, the locusts are blown out to the sea, but the Jews are still not free. When darkness settles over Egypt for three days, Paro tries to nickel and dime Moshe by offering to free the Jews, but without any of the animals, to offer a sacrifice. And when Moshe throws the offer back in Paro's face, Paro says, Go from me, be on your watch. You are not to see my face again, for on the day that you see my face, you shall die. The final plague is to be so profoundly devastating that, quote, afterward, he will send you free from here. When he sends you free, it is finished. He will drive, yes, drive you out from here. To prepare for this cataclysm, the Jews in increments of one household are to take a year-old lamb on the first day of Nisan, keep it in safekeeping until the 14th day, when they are to slaughter it and dab its blood on the doorposts and lintel. That night, they are to roast the lamb and eat it along with matzah and bitter herbs and be ready to leave Egypt in haste. On this day, the text says, Shall be for you a memorial. You are to celebrate it as a pilgrimage celebration for Adonai, throughout your generations, for the ages, to celebrate it, for seven days, matzot you are to eat. Already on the first day you are to get rid of leaven from your houses. For anyone who eats what is fermented from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the first day, a proclamation of holiness. And on the seventh day, a proclamation of holiness shall there be for you. No kind of work is to be made on them. Only what belongs to every person to eat that alone may be made ready by you, and keep the festival of Matzot. For on this same day I have brought out your forces from the land of Egypt. 
keep this day throughout your generations as a law for the ages. And in the middle of that night, when God strikes down all of the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Paro to the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon, quote, there was a great cry in Egypt, for there is not a house in which there is not a dead man. Paro finally submits, but not before Egypt is broken and fearful. And the Jews are finally free. Now they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into marzot cakes, for it had not fermented, for they had been driven out of Egypt, and were not able to linger, neither had they made provisions for themselves. And the settlement of the children of Israel which they had settled in Egypt was thirty years and four hundred years, it was at the end of thirty years and four hundred years, it was on that same day. All of Adonai's forces went out from the land of Egypt. In the previous episode, I talked about collective punishment and segued rather seamlessly into a spiel about game theory and how the tit-for-tat strategy worked best in a prisoner's dilemma, but only if there were more than two players which would invalidate the application of the strategy in the case of Paro and Moshe, but, you know, whatever. The issue that remained hanging, though, sort of up in the air, unresolved, was the matter of collective punishment and how the plagues indiscriminately punished all of Egypt for Paro's recalcitrance. And that, as my daughter Hila said... And that's not fair. So recently I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, the Slate Political Gab Fest, and as a bit of a departure from their usual topics... Host David Plotz and John Dickerson, along with their guest Garance Frank Ruta, a senior editor at The Atlantic, pondered the significance of the Battle of Gettysburg on its 150th anniversary. Uh, for folks who, who didn't pay attention in that much in American history class or perhaps Canadian, the Battle of Gettysburg was fought from July 1st to 3rd in 1863 in and around the town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Union Major General George Meade's Army of the Potomac fended off attacks from the Confederate General Robert E. Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia. They were trying to push into the north and take the Civil War into the Union's backyard. And over those three days in July, more men, something like 56,000 or so, were either killed, wounded, or captured than in any other engagement during the entire American Civil War. And with Meade's victory over Lee, the fate of the South was sealed. The North would win decisively and be able to dictate terms to the defeated South. And during the discussion about this key battle in the American Civil War, David Plotz made the following statement. It's funny, I mean, what, you know, when you think about it, this is a true Northerner speaking, Lee was fighting for the most dis- as cause that was as despicable, arguably more despicable, than the Nazi cause. It is a morally indefensible act, the war that the South waged because they were waging it to defend something which was indefensible. Which prompted me to think, really? Lee was fighting for a cause more despicable than, say, Rommel? Fighting for the South was a morally indefensible act because they were waging it to defend something indefensible that is slavery, whereas the Nazis were fighting for something more defensible than slavery? Which, for me, then, begged the following question. Well, if slavery was morally indefensible... Then did all those folks in the South, especially in Georgia, let's say, who, who liked slavery or who profited from the avails of slavery, did they get what they deserved when Sherman marched to the sea, burning and destroying everything in his path? Or how about all those folks in Dresden who either supported Hitler or, or didn't actively oppose him enough? Did they deserve to be engulfed in a firestorm that burned unabated for a whole week? 
Or how about the folks in Hiroshima and Nagasaki or the folks in the World Trade Center? In other words, what responsibility does the average citizen of a country bear for the crimes, real or perceived, of their government? And an even harder question to ponder is how many onside citizens would it take in order for all or most to be held accountable? A plurality? A simple majority of 51%? Or 60%? Or maybe 67%? But rather than break my head on that conundrum, instead I, I want to shift and consider one citizen, a Southerner, living in Alabama during the Great Depression, and consider those questions in light of his actions. Because this one Southerner, even though he is a fictional Southerner, is single-handedly responsible for more folks pursuing the law as a profession than any other person real or imagined. That person is Atticus Finch, the central figure in Nell Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Dahlia Lithwick, a regular contributor to Slate on legal matters, wrote that Atticus Finch remains, quote, everything a truly great attorney should be, a defender of the voiceless and downtrodden, a protester against mob rule and the patron saint of hopeless legal causes. The Alabama single father who famously defended a black man, Tom Robinson, who was falsely accused of raping a white woman in the Jim Crow American South, has stood the test of time despite the fact that Atticus is almost too eloquent, ethical, honest, and forbearing. But with the marking in 2010 of 50 years since the publication of To Kill a Mockingbird, some folks have started asking questions about Atticus Finch. And by the way, if you ever want to rile a lawyer, like really get a lawyer angry at you, say something mildly disparaging of Atticus Finch and see what happens next. It might involve orders of protection. One of the folks was Malcolm Gladwell. Gladwell is the author of many books with catchy titles and wordy subtitles like The Tipping Point, How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference, or Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking, or Outliers, The Story of Success. He's also a prodigious speaker and a brand name thinker. In 2009, he wrote a piece in The New Yorker where he likened Finch to Big Jim Folsom, a governor of Alabama and a progressive Southern populist. As Gladwell writes, quote, Folsom worked to extend the vote to disenfranchise blacks. He wanted to equalize salaries between white and black school teachers. He routinely commuted the death sentences of blacks convicted in what he believed were less than fair trials. He made no attempt to segregate the crowd at his inaugural address. Y'all come, he would say to the one and all making a proud and lonely stand for racial justice. But Folsom, like Atticus Finch, was not a civil rights activist. He operated out of what Gladwell describes as a sense of noblesse oblige. Privileged whites, he believed, ought to, quote, adopt a more humanitarian attitude toward blacks. Civil rights activists did not want a more humanitarian attitude toward blacks. They wanted the law applied and enforced, and they wanted the law to compel white folks to treat blacks equally. When the Supreme Court ruled in favor of desegregation in Brown v. Board of Education, no Southern politician could take a moderate stance in response. Folsom, though, therefore, was defeated by a segregationist who, when confronted by more civil rights successes, was replaced by a radical. Now, Atticus Finch never second-guessed his decision to represent Tom Robinson. He understood that he was going to be a target of white rage for defending a black man accused of rape. But throughout his defense of Tom Robinson, he never challenged the deeply entrenched racism in Maycomb or Jim Crow in the South or the regular miscarriage of white justice. He remained optimistic about the possibility of winning an appeal in a higher court even after the Maycomb jury convicted Robinson of rape that he didn't commit. 
Finch, as Gladwell and others have argued, wanted his white male jurors to do the right thing, but, quote, as a good Jim Crow liberal, he dare not challenge the foundations of their privilege. Instead, Finch does what lawyers for black men did in those days. He encourages them to swap one of their prejudices for another. And, although, and though Atticus Finch taught us about empathy, he could only seemingly empathize with the people he knew in his little Alabama town. Yes, he stood up to racists, but he could not stand against racism. So I wonder, how, how long can a good man accommodate injustice be, before he becomes complicit with it? How long must a good man accommodate injustice before he says enough? So now, having potentially sullied one of the most admired characters in 20th century fiction and roused the ire of an army of lawyers who now want me either dead or summoned, I want to shift yet again to Egypt to ask similar questions about the Egyptians and whether they, too, should be held collectively responsible for enslaving the Jews. And as such, deserve the blood, the frogs, the gnats, the wild animals, the pestilence, etc., etc. As we discussed in episode 13, the Egyptians themselves were enslaved to Paro as a result of the economic policies put in place by Yosef. But this does not mean that their class identification trumped their religious and national loyalties. Even though the Egyptians were slaves like the Jews, they stood by Paro. This was also true in the American South. Even though the Cunninghams had more in common with the Robinsons, they would side with the Ewells and Jim Crow. But, interestingly, the rabbis of the Talmud saw this differently, or at least acknowledged what Atticus told Scout. Just learn a single trick, Scout. We get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. Sir? Till you climb inside of his skin and walk around in it. In the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Megillah 10b, Rabbi Yochanan teaches that God does not rejoice in the downfall of the wicked. He interprets the word ze-el-zeh in the phrase, and one did not come near the other, ze-el-zeh, all the night, in Exodus chapter 14, verse 20, to teach that when the Egyptians were drowning in the sea, the ministering angels wanted to sing a song of rejoicing, but God rebuked them. The work of my hands is being drowned in the sea, and you want to sing songs? The God of the rabbis feels what the God of Moshe does not. Empathy for the Egyptians, who, despite their king and their slavery, are people just like us. <laughs> As always, you can leave a comment, question, comment, or summons, if need be, at the Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish, if I'm not tied up in court. For episode 18 on Exodus chapters 13 through 16. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah?